our God and our ever-blessed Father in heaven, we come this evening to humble ourselves under your mighty hand and to take ourselves to your word, O Lord, and to pray that you would speak to us, for your servants are listening, that you would grant to your servant here in this place at this time boldness, O Lord, that I might speak as he ought to speak with clarity and unction and courage and conviction and compassion, that your word would spread in me and through me, O God, and perform its work in the hearts of all who believe here this evening, and that you remember your promise that it will never return to you void, but will prosper and accomplish the work that you have ordained it to do. So tonight, O Lord, as we hear your word, let us not harden our hearts to it or to you, but grant us open and receptive hearts that the word might find deep root therein and produce fruit unto everlasting life. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the word of God to the Psalter and Psalm 6. And we haven't got six psalms into the Psalter, and we'll find David in trouble from his family, from his people, from his enemies, men in high places attacking him. And this evening in our psalm, we find David in trouble with his God. And we ask ourselves, why are such psalms in the Bible? Well, because you will need them. And sooner than you might think. Please listen carefully. This is the word of the living God. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am languishing. Heal me, O God, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me from this, for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But this is the word of our God, and it endures forever. 
forever. Now, most commentators root this psalm in that season of David's life when Absalom rebelled against him, the kingdom was taken from him for, for a brief period of time at least, and he fled for his life across the brook Kidron um, to hide in the caves and forests of Judea. It was a bleak time in David's life whenever he had sinned against the Lord, he'd taken the wife of Uriah, one of his friends, one of his faithful, loyal men. He had desecrated Uriah and Bathsheba's marriage, conceived a child out of wedlock. And while God had forgiven him his sin, you remember the Lord said through the prophet that the sword will never depart from your life. And in many ways, David's life is a slow motion train wreck from thence on. And it's agonizing to watch. With that said, however, um, Plummer, who's a great commentator in the Psalms, you can get his work online for free. You can also buy uh, it's a big tome that the banner have produced, but it's a wonderful commentary in the Psalms. He says there's a strong tendency in commentators to, ref to refer many of the sorrowful Psalms to David's penitence respecting the matter of Uriah. But David was a penitent before he incurred guilt in that affair. And both before and after that sad business, his great trouble, as is that of every believer, was the plague of his own heart, the fountain of depravity within him. His whole life was, in that sense, a conflict with corruption. Paul had committed no recent outbreaking sin when he uttered that exceedingly bitter cry, O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It was indwelling sin then, Plummer says, that distressed Paul so. And so in one sense, all of us as Christians can make use of this psalm probably every day because our lives, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, even our righteousness, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags, um, a stained rag in the restroom, better off in the commode, uh, is, the, is the kind of term that Isaiah is using. All of our righteousness are as filthy rags in the sight of God. In our best days, we can sing Psalm 6. And yet there's a sense, though, as you, as you read this psalm, that David is conscious of the fury of God above him, the fires of hell beneath him. He speaks of Shaul in this psalm as a place where God is not remembered. He's frightened, I think. And you can take that as the grave. Nobody wants to die. But it seems to be something more than that. There are darker overtones to the term Shaul of the place of the wicked damned. And here David seems to be fearful of the fury of God above him and the, the fires of hell beneath him and dangers all around him as enemies come in like a flood, and doubts and despair within him, all of which he richly deserved. And he takes a psalm to his lips, again teaching us the great lesson of the Psalter, that we face life best when we, save, when we face God first. That's true in our best days. 
and it's true also in our worst days. Why are such psalms in the Bible? Well, for Christ, they're there for Him. Always remember the psalms are Christ's psalm book before they're yours. And you remember, you can remember, you could imagine Jesus, the young teen, as the messianic consciousness begins to break upon him. You could imagine Jesus singing the words of this psalm, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And the Father saying to him by the Spirit, Son, there'll come a day when I will rebuke you in my fury and distress you in my wrath, and there will be no mercy for you. There'll be no opportunity for you to cry out, be gracious to me, O Lord, for in that day you will receive an ocean of wrath and not a drop of mercy. And so Jesus is being taught here of the reality of his Father's wrath, not that he deserved that wrath in himself, but he will deserve that wrath in you as your sins become his very own so that his righteousness might become yours by the same logic, Christian. So they're there for Christ. They're also there for us as believers. Plummer again says so beautifully, God, God loves his people too well to let them wander on in sin and drop into hell for the want of a little needful and wholesome severity. There's a withering logic in Paul's words in Romans 8. He who lives according to the flesh will die face death and all of its horror, and God will use all of his power, and at times all of, a, all of his fury, to frighten us away from that which would destroy us, which is our sins, and our propensity to forsake him and defy him. They're also there for us to teach us the lesson that while mercy can be had, it'll not be had without prayer. And sometimes the kind of prayer that is mingles long with tears before it receives a felt answer in our soul. And if you're in that place this evening, don't despair. If you're crying out, Lord, how long? Which one of the commentators said was Calvin's favorite brief prayer. Lord, how long? You're in good company. They're there for us as believers. Plummer again says, no small part of spiritual wisdom consists in knowing how to behave under severe and complicated trials. And this psalm is designed to teach you. And they're there also for unbelievers. Maybe you're here this evening and you don't yet share our faith. Please listen to me a second. If David, who is a man whose sins have been forgiven, could fear the wrath of God even while he hoped for mercy. Should that not teach you also to fear? For it's appointed once for man to die, and after that the judgment. If David felt this way with the hope of mercy still on the horizon, what would it not be like for you if you resist the gospel, if you despise the love of God that offers you his son as your substitute, and you move beyond this world to eternity where mercy will be no more and grace will be no more, and you'll meet the wrath of the God whose love you despised, and that'll be your portion forever. Think about that we work our way through this psalm and turn to the God who gave mercy to David. And if you'll give mercy to David, 
He'll give mercy to you this evening, whoever you are and whatever you've done. So how do you respond? How do you respond when God's hand is against you, or it seems to be against you in life, and it's crushing you down, and you feel as if you can't take any more? When your life's unraveling, and you realize you only have yourself to blame, what do you do? David says three things. First of all, get your priorities straight. Secondly, go to the God you've offended. And thirdly, you go forward in, in, in faith. Get your priorities straight. Go to the God you've offended and go forward in faith. Let's work through those together. First of all, get your priorities straight. David feels himself surrounded by earthly, by earthly enemies, men who are out to get him. He calls them workers of evil. And they are in his very presence, even at the end of the psalm, when he's conscious that God has heard him. So how much worse was it not for David to feel their presence at the same time he was lamenting the absence of God, at least in his love, and the presence of the fury of God? He's also feeling awful agony. There's no trouble like soul trouble Many of the old commentators say, and David's up to his neck and soul trouble in this psalm. And yet notice the order of his prayers. He goes to God first. Then he talks about his anguish. But he doesn't even mention his enemies until verse 8, when the psalm is halfway done. He goes first to God. That should always be the Christian's number one concern. All is lost for the Christian when he feels the loss of God. And nothing else will satisfy him or her until he feels God return to his soul. And if that's your deepest pain and agony this evening, it's actually a sign of tremendous soul health. The wicked are, are apt to lament financial troubles, physical troubles, health troubles. But the healthy Christian... His deepest pain, his deepest anguish is soul trouble when he feels the presence of his sin, the enormity of his guilt, and the absence of his God. Archibald Simpson, who was an old author that Spurgeon quotes, which is another fantastic, if you want to get a great commentary in the Psalms, Charles Spurgeon's three volumes are incredible, The Treasury of David. Archibald Simpson says, David flies not with Adam to the bush, nor with Saul to the witch, nor with Jonah to Tarshish, but he appeals from an angry God to a merciful one. He appeals from an angry God to a merciful one. When God is your problem, only God can be the answer. We often talk about salvation, right? And it begs the question, saved from what? I remember once Mormons came around to my house back in Savannah, and I first of all got the minions, they came around first, and they came and they asked me, um, you know, all their kind of thing they use for Christians, and I listened to them for about half an hour, and then I said to them, okay, I've got one question for you. The Bible speaks a lot about salvation. It's all over the Bible. 
What's the word salvation mean to you? Crickets. So they leave and they come back the next week with the kind of the next level, the next level up Mormon. And he comes in and gives me a spiel for 30 minutes. And after he finished, I said, okay, I've got one question for you. The Bible speaks Old Testament and New. It's about a word, it's kind of important. Salvation. What's the word salvation mean to you? What are we saved from? What are we saved by? And what are we saved to? Crickets. You come back the third week, kind of the grand wizard of Savannah, uh, Mormons. I thought at least by this time they'd have an answer. He goes through his 30-minute spiel, at the end of which I asked him, okay, um, salvation, what do we save from? What do we save by? What do we save to? And he had nothing to say. And many of you this evening might think, well, we're saved from our sins, and we are. But actually, more than that, we're saved from our God and his just indignation against our sins. Get your priorities straight. When God is your problem, only God can be the answer. Secondly, go to the God you have offended. Go to the God you've offended. His wrath is real and always deserved. His mercy is real and always ready. And his heart is kind and always tender. Let's think of those points under undergo to the God you've offended. First of all, his wrath is real and always deserved. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Alec Mateer says, in a low ebb of physical, mental, and emotional energy, David sounded the depths here recorded. Human enmity has breached his defenses, but at a deeper level, there is the anger of the Lord bringing with it weakness, terror, and anguish. Luther says, to rightly feel your sin is the terror of terrors when you're standing in the presence of God. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And notice David doesn't say, Lord, it's not fair. Lord, you're dealing with me too severely. Even in our worst moment, the Christian knows he can still pray. You have not dealt with me according to my sins, nor rewarded me according to my iniquities. The only man in the world in this life who could ever say that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sins that God dealt with him for were not his own sins, but the sins of his people. But David doesn't complain here that you're not being fair to me, O Lord. And notice, David does not ask the Lord not to chasten him and not to rebuke him. He says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. And if you chasten me, in a sense, fine, but please don't chasten me in your wrath. An ancient author said, God has two rods, one of mercy and goodness that comfort us, one of anger and fury that chasten us. And David pleads for the one and not the other. Come, Lord, if you're going to beat me with your rod, may it be the rod of mercy and, un and goodness. But don't come with a fury untempered by grace or a wrath unsupported by your mercy. Come, O oh Lord, but don't come in your 
and your bare fury and anger. Spurgeon again says, it were folly to pray against the golden hand which enriches us by its blows. So David here is in one sense saying, Lord, you're right to be angry with me. And there's a wonderful section in, in Matthew Henry's prayer book on confessions, Method for Prayer, that Dr. Ligon Duncan has so kindly put, compiled together for us in modern English using modern versions of the Bible. You can go online and find it in your own favorite version. And it's a wonderful tool to learn how to pray. And in the section of confessing sin, which is normally almost completely absent in evangelical. You'll travel a very long way indeed before you hear anybody confess their sins and the sins of the congregation in public worship. But the, the fathers were wise enough to know, and if you read the confession section, it goes on for a very long time. But in that, um, David or Matthew Henry sorry, encourages us to, to confess the aggravations of our sins. Not because God needs to hear them, but because we need to say them. That we've sinned against God, not just breaking His law, but we've sinned against the gospel. We've sinned against God's patience. He's born with us. We've committed this sin again and again and again, perhaps, and often, and yet... God is born with us and not destroyed us, and our sins are against His patience. They're against His mercy in the gospel. They're against our calling as Christians, and especially if we're a minister or an elder or a deacon. We've sinned against the office. You know, let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive a stricter judgment. And he goes on with a list of aggravations. And it's, it's good for the soul it's like spiritual yoga. It feels painful, stretching out all those muscles, but it's good for your body. And, 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 and dealing honestly and openly with God is good for the soul. And the psalmist does it much more than we do in our age. And I suspect it's because he's wiser than we are and knows better. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He wants God to chasten him, but to chasten him as a father, spanking his son, and not as a judge destroying one of his enemies. So go to, go to the God you've offended. His wrath is real and always deserved. Secondly, his mercy is no less real and always ready. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I'm drooping like an old flower that's half dead. O Lord, for my bones are troubled. In Northern Ireland, you might have the phrase here too, probably not in Colombia though, but in, in Northern Ireland we have this phrase that I'm so cold I've been chilled to the bone. Well, David here is so sorrowful, he's been, he's been made sorry, troubled to his bones, the very foundation of his being. And in the next verse, he goes deeper, my soul also is greatly troubled. Be gracious to me. Grace is always the master argument with God. When everything else 
pleads for your destruction, for your condemnation, for your judgment. And you can say nothing about yourself, but I am a sinner. I am lost. You can always turn to God and say, but you are gracious. David knows himself too well to plead for justice, and he knows God too well not to plead for grace. Archimedes famously said once, if you give me a lever long enough and a place to stand with a pivot, I could move the world with my finger. Well, you can move God, even a God that you have enraged by your sins. You can move him by simply crying out for grace. Be gracious to me. Spurgeon says, do not plead your greatness or your goodness, but plead your wickedness and your weakness. David, he says, praise Lord, temper the wind to the wee shorn lamb shivering in the icy blast. Merit can never get you to heaven, but demerit can never keep you out if you plead grace. Because when you're pleading for grace, you're not talking about merit, your merit. You're talking about God and his vast capacity to give sinners what they don't deserve. We do deserve his wrath, but in his love, he gives us his grace. Remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, we were dead, dead in our trespasses and in our sins, in which you also lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit who's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we were, we were children of wrath, even as the rest, Paul says. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Even the faith we have is a gift of God, Paul says. Alec Mateer, I love Alec Mateer. But the greatest of all perils yields to the simplest of all remedies. The cry, be merciful. And brings with it the assurance, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. And if the greatest need is dispelled by prayer, then will not lesser needs be met in the same way. So get your priorities straight. Go to God. His wrath is real and always deserved, but His mercy is no less real and always ready. And then thirdly, under that point, His heart is kind and always tender. Just listen to verse, from verse 3 on. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long he can't even, he's so crushed, he can't even finish the sentence. Plummer again says, great grief is apt to utter broken sentences. He 
can't even finish the sentence. How long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. He's arguing again for God's stubborn, determined commitment to be kind to us, to be loving to us, no matter what we deserve and no matter what it costs him. For in death, there is no remembrance of you in Sha'ul, the place of the wicked damned, I think, in this, con- in, this con- in this context. Who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Spurgeon says that eye of his that had looked and lusted after his neighbor's wife is now dimmed and darkened with grief and indignation. He had wept himself almost blind. Actually, that was John Trapp said that, but it's quoted by Spurgeon. Prayers and Tears is the title that Kidner gives to this psalm, Prayers and Tears. There are times when the faithful saint can't pray without tears. And no saint should be ashamed of praying with them. Spurgeon called us called this, let us learn to see tears as liquid prayers, for God does. Now, why are these words in the psalm? Here's David, he's basically talking whenever, whenever Catherine had her first child, Hannah. And we were back in Northern Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, the NHS is challenging. Um, not, I hope, because of the standard of the medical staff, but because it's it's worth exactly what you pay for it, which is nothing. Um, and if you're a doctor, the, one of the few perks is that your wife gets private treatment. She gets a private room. She's not in the, in the ward amidst the herd of humanity. She's actually in a private room. And Catherine didn't want that. Catherine wanted to be just, like, just treated like any other English, Scottish, or Irish woman. And she said to me, Neil, if the NHS is good enough for the rest of Britain, it's good enough for me. And I couldn't argue against her. One of my friends, who's now a senior physician in the Royal Victoria Hospital, said to me, ah, there's the flaw in her argument. The NHS is not good enough for the rest of Britain. (laughs) But anyway, one of the hazards of being in the NHS is you're not guaranteed an epidural. And most women don't get it. And one of the old ladies in the, in the church took Catherine by the hand and said, and said to Catherine, now listen to me, she said, listen to me now. And she, she, the, the woman had been telling them all of the horror stories of their 15-pound babies and everything else, so Catherine was pretty distressed. She was going to listen to me. There will come a time in the labor when you think you can't take the pain anymore. Now listen to me, she said. Not the time when you really can't take the pain anymore. It'll be too late then. But when you only think you can't take the pain anymore, grab your husband's hand and squeeze it as tight as you can and tell him, get me an anesthesiologist. I want an epidural now. (laughs) Well, David here is saying to God, I can't take the pain anymore. 
I, I can't take one more second. God has been delaying and delaying and delaying. David is weary with his groaning. He's wept his bed sodden with his, tar, t- with his tears. And he's wept his eyes out, one commentator puts it, for verse 7. Why are those prayers in the Bible? They're not just to tell you what you are to say in your prayers, but they describe, do they not, the kind of God you're approaching. God has inspired such prayers because he has a heart to hear such prayers. He keeps your tears in a bottle. Think about it. You're made in God's image, but you are a heartless sinner. You're sitting of an evening in your home. The fire is on. It's warm. It's freezing outside. You have your slippers on and you're dressed for bed and you're watching a movie or some sporting game and you have your your favorite beverage in your right hand and some snacks in your left hand. You've just sat back in the lazy boy. You've kicked back and you're sitting there. And then at the door, you hear this little scratch. And you hear your dog outside. And you try to steal your heart against the poor beast. You're saying, I'm here, I'm in my pajamas, it's freezing outside, open the door, I'm going to get that blast of cold air at me. I'm comfortable if I just if I ignore him for a few moments, he'll give up and go away. But the dog knows you better than that, and the dog just keeps on going, scratching at the door. <laughs> And there's something about the way God has made you that you cannot feel nothing when you hear an animal crying out in misery. You can't sit there and do nothing. You've got to take action. It grabs like like a chain tied around your aorta. When you hear someone or something in misery, even an animal, you feel drawn to help them. And you're that way because God is that way. And God has put words like this in the Psalter to let you know when you cry out in agony in heaven, there is one on the throne of God who feels, who's moved, moved by your agony. And though he leaves you waiting long until the time is ripe for him to come to you, or you are ripe, sometimes he needs to leave you out in the cold for a few minutes or even a few hours while you ripen waiting for him to come. He does that not because he's cruel, but because he's kind and his heart is moved. And that's that wonderful portion, and I don't want to steal uh, Dr. Ross's thunder for next Sunday, but in Lamentations 3 where he does not willingly afflict the children of men. Even when he sends pain into your heart, he doesn't do it with all of his heart, the largest part of which is always inclined toward you, his child, and he loves you. He's moved by your agony. And, and God includes words like this in the Psalms to teach you that such words are not wasted to him or on him, and such arguments have the power to move him. 
So get your priorities straight. Go to God. And lastly, and very briefly, go forward in faith. Verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now, notice the enemies are still there. David needs to tell them to, shoo, go away. They're still there. So in one sense, nothing has changed down here on earth, but everything has changed between his soul and heaven because he's conscious. He's lent upon the covenant. He's called upon the never-lying God in whom all of his promises are yea and amen in Christ. And because God has returned... He can look with confidence upon his foes, even though they're still very much present. And it takes faith to say things like that. To reach through contrary earthly circumstances and to lay hold of a deeper truth. Men may be against you. Cancer may be against you. The beginnings of Alzheimer's might be against you. Financial collapse might be against you, but oh, if God is for you. And here's David facing his own earthly troubles that are still enormous and won't go away for a very long time, yet he reaches through them and lays hold of God and the sure and certain confidence that if God will be with him, David can face any other trial and carry any other burden as long as the smile of heaven is upon him and the sentence of wrath has been taken away and absorbed in the gracious character of God. Let me say one last word. If you're here this evening and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus, Look at those words in verse 8. This is David speaking. But one day, great David's greater son shall say these words. And how thankful I will be. I have the same sins. I deserve the same wrath. But when Christ says those words over the world, he will not say those words over the church because we have a Savior. But there's coming a day when many will hear him say, depart from me, all you workers of evil. And I plead with you today, if the wrath of God terrified this man and he knew the gospel, should the same wrath of God not terrify you? When the Savior who that day will stand ready to sentence you to the hell he received upon the cross, that he might offer you mercy this evening in this sermon, wouldn't you rather to stand in that day with a Savior than to stand in that day by yourself and with all your sins ready to crush you forever?
Oh, Jesus says, literally, I am dying to save you. I came to this earth, I became a man, and I became sin, and I became cursed, that I might absorb the guilt of hell-deserving sinners. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Come to me, and though your sins are red like scarlet, they shall be as wool. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What a Savior with a heart big enough and grace wide enough to look at a world of sin and sinners and to say to them, come to me, and I am enough to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Stop rebelling against me. Learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. His love is very wonderful. Draw near to us this evening, we pray, and work in all of our hearts according to our need. Save the lost, restore the backslider, strengthen the weary, support those, O Lord, who have no strength to put one foot past another, and come to the brokenhearted who are, who are weeping their eyes out and assure them there's one in heaven who loves them so much he treasures even their tears in a bottle. And he numbers all of our wanderings. In Christ our Savior's name we pray. Amen.